So let's go full circle because there was a really nice few lines in that the feedback fallacy where it was talking about replicating excellence and taking certain key things. And it said, if we think that to do really well in X, you don't you need to reject ego, you're probably wrong. So I'm really curious about the reasons what motivates people to have their social media presence and to shape it as it is. Um, and how ego, what fuels the ego? So ego could be getting the likes, it could be getting the followers, or it could be actually the satisfaction from being supportive, being uh, out there, but be, uh, being humble with that. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast, and as always, thank you for listening to any episode that you can. The whole purpose behind my podcast is to interview people from the world of education and beyond who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life through their chosen profession, whatever that profession may be. I'm going to jump right into a description of today's episode. It is actually a part two uh, to a discussion that I had with Jorge Rodriguez last week about the role of feedback in relation to professional growth and learning. Uh, in last week's episode, uh, we dove into, in particular, um, the role of social media and the role that uh, social media can play in our professional growth and learning, as well as the role of feedback on social media. Uh, this discussion today um, takes it to the next level, I think, and we wanted to have our friends uh, Greg Dreyer and Aaron Beatley on the show as well. So this is a roundtable discussion that is based around an article that I read a few uh, weeks ago called The Feedback Fallacy, which you can find uh, online uh, through Harvard Business Review. So I had shared the link to the article with Aaron, Greg, and Jorge uh, each of us read the article. Uh, we talked about at the beginning of the episode kind of what resonates with us in regards to the article. And then that led to uh, a further discussion about the role of feedback and professional growth and learning. And then we finished the episode off with uh, sharing our thoughts again around uh, social media and the role of feedback in professional growth and learning related to the use of social media, Twitter. Uh, in particular. So um, let's just jump right into the discussion now. Uh, hope you enjoy it. Please let us know your thoughts, um, what resonates with you, what you disagree with, uh, things we might not have considered. Uh, we really want to do a, a part three uh, to take the conversation even further. Um, but as Greg says at the end of the podcast, uh, maybe people don't want a part three. Maybe two parts is enough, but uh, so just let us know your thoughts. If, if you want uh, a deeper discussion, um, things we might consider discussing, and uh, just share your thoughts with us. So with that, let's jump right into uh, the feedback fallacy episode with Greg Dreyer, Jorge Rodriguez, and Aaron Beatley and myself. Thanks for listening. Okay, so this is a part two finally. So last week, Jorge and I had done a uh, the feedback loop episode where we just kind of shared our thoughts around feedback, 
uh, in particular, social media, um, the role of feedback on social media, and just kind of sharing our own stories. Uh, and we had set the intention to have Aaron and Greg on the show as well uh, to do a part two to dig deeper into feedback. And uh, before we get into kind of the real guts of the episode, just a roundtable uh, introduction. Uh, who's in the call? A little bit about yourself. So let's start with Greg. Hi, everyone. Thanks for uh, inviting me on, Andy. Really enjoyed your conversation in part one. So good to pick up in part two. My name's Greg Dreyer. I'm the director of the Centre for PE, Sport and Activity at Kingston University. Uh, I taught in London, in inner London, for teaching career of uh, 16 years before moving into higher education. And I'm also the co-founder of a new app called MyMove, which we spoke about on a previous podcast. And that's at mymoveapp.com. Over to Aaron, who needs no introduction. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. I'm, I'm the director of nothing. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Kentucky where I prepare teachers, um, dabble in research, write books, articles, those kinds of things. And a uh, big part, obviously, is preparing teachers and providing feedback, especially to new teachers. So uh, interested to hear you guys' comments about that. All right, and I am Jorge Rodriguez, and I'm a PE teacher here in Saudi Arabia, um, and I work with Andy. And likewise, I'm a pedagogical coordinator and also a PE teacher again after many years, uh, which has been great, and I uh, work closely with Jorge. And this past week, I wanted to dive into an article in particular that I had shared on social media a couple weeks ago. And and I did get a few direct messages from uh, different educators who had read the article that found a lot of value in it, uh, but had more questions about it. It just sparked more questions. The article itself, which we're going to include in the show notes, uh, it's called The Feedback Fallacy uh, by the, the Harvard Business Review. And uh, it, a good article that kind of gets right down to what feedback is, but where people and businesses and organizations go wrong with feedback. So we thought, I'm holding it in my hand right here, we thought it would be great to give us each, you know, one to two minutes to just share our key takeaways from the article, just to set the frame for the rest of the discussion. So uh, why don't we start with Jorge, um, just share your thoughts around the article and anything that kind of resonated with you, and then you can pass it to Greg or Aaron. Okay, so um, so for me, uh, I, I when I was reading the article, it, it made a lot of really interesting points, and I got a few notes that I wrote from the article here. Um, and, but but basically, some of the things that I found that were really interesting, and I, it kind of resonated with me, um, was when they were talking about uh, criticism, and we talked about this in our in our last podcast when we talked about the the feedback loop, but. Uh, criticism, uh, kind of evoking some of those emotional reactions and kind of, kind of st stirring up some of those feelings, um, and and it can be it can be you know very emotional when you when you receive criticism, um, and in the article it was talking about how sometimes it triggers that fight or or flight response, and so when that happens there's no there's no learning that can happen after that, so you're in a place you're in a very emotional place and you can't get back to that rational mind that you would need to receive that feedback and then make changes. 
Um, and I think that that absolutely happens, right? And we talked about that in our podcast. Um, but the other side of it that I kept kind of thinking about as well is, you know, it kind of takes two people to give and receive feedback. So the giver should be, the giver of feedback should be conscious of, of, of those things, of the potential of what they're saying to be received emotionally. But the receiver also has a responsibility in the, in the interaction, and so for me, um, it also kind of takes me back to, again, what we talked about in our podcast with the idea of, uh, of Thanks for the Feedback, that book, Thanks for the Feedback, and how you receive feedback. And you, you, you try to kind of take that emotion out of it. Um, so that's important to, to consider as well. So it's not just the giver, but the receiver has a responsibility as well. So sometimes you come across somebody who might not be as nice with their feedback, and you have to be able to... Uh, kind of filter out the 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 emotion and and you know all the other stuff and take uh, some of the some of the um, important aspects of that feedback so that you can make changes or that you can you know learn from it. Um, so the receiver I think has a responsibility in the in the in the whole process as well. And the other thing that I thought was uh, really interesting was where they talked about um, uh, how excellence can't kind of be predetermined. I thought that was really interesting and and kind of something that. Uh, I've been thinking about a lot of lately, um, especially in teaching, when you're thinking about like standards and when you're thinking about uh, cues and things like that, uh, and how much of a balance you want the, the kids to be able to discover and the kids to be able to um, explore certain certain skills and certain activities and how much you want to be a part of that as well. Um, so yeah, I thought that was really interesting too, how excellence can't necessarily be, be predetermined and how it has to kind of, you know, there has to be a, a process to it. So yeah, so I'll kick it over to Greg. Thanks, Jorge. Yeah, I'm going to pick up on some of those themes. So my takeaway from the uh, article, well, well, first of all, it's such a central part of, of our work at university, uh, has been for a long time. Feedback and the feedback loop is absolutely uh, a central pillar in initial teacher education and obviously it, it has become embedded in ongoing teacher development so the first thing that struck me was actually the title uh the use of the word fallacy um and as i read through um it really highlighted the assumptions that we make about feedback um and the complexity and in many ways the ineffectiveness of the process. Uh, and it's just something that is absolutely taken for granted that you have a more knowledgeable person, a more experienced person, however that's defined. And again, there's assumptions in who's more knowledgeable and who's more experienced. Um, giving, correcting, supporting, telling a less experienced, less knowledgeable person how to get better. And the three assumptions that they really highlight and pull apart is one, that feedback is always a good thing, that feedback supports professional learning, and that, as Jorge said, that performance is describable, excellent performance is describable, packageable. You could bottle it. And I'm not going to go into the literature and the, the authors, but obviously, well, I, I should probably stop saying obviously, um, there is a whole industry around how to um, and you could probably find how to in any sector and in any profession but what we're really bothered about is how to teach and so we've got uh, an industry 
that is born out of our landscape that is teaching by numbers. Do this, tick this box. Tick. And we get many teachers, many pre-service teachers whose who's reports, so when I say it's really central, uh, for those who are not necessarily familiar with UK teacher education, our, our teachers, when they go into school, our trainee teachers, when they go into school, are appointed a mentor. And in PE, and this is something we were talking about last week, we're really into feedback in PE. So we were talking the other last week that the PE trainee teachers get a lot more feedback than their counterparts in English and science and maths who might get one or two key lessons a week. But the PE lessons, they're watched like every lesson and afterwards is... So I think there's a really strong t- tradition in physical education around this feedback loop. And it's born... Um, very much out of, and you're going to have to forgive me, Aaron, I know you really, really don't buy this sort of stuff, but it's, it's born out of this neo-managerialism that you can go with a clipboard, you can check things. So our training teachers say... Can you spell that? No, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, they say, that was a good lesson, but you need to have more of, you need to have more assessment for learning. So do more assessment for learning. And it really becomes this... Uh, somewhat disjointed uh, process I was also really struck struck by the skills needed to mentor and to give feedback and I I think we'd probably expand on those as the conversation goes and I would also like to expand on a thing that Jorge said around the emotional response which for me is always born out of the power imbalance and the way that power imbalance plays out in the process. So that's probably far too much for me by way of introduction. So I'll go to uh, Andy. To me. I was actually going to pass it to Aaron. Aaron, you go and then I'll finish. All right. My feedback so far is Jorge and Greg need stopwatches because it was one to two minutes. That was the instructions. All right. Um, So my... It's my podcast. I can go (laughs) longer... (laughs) If I want. And, and I'm assuming my stopwatch is right, and that <laughs> my 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 ability. That's one of the things I was going to say is that the whole idea. Of this really, this article really challenges norms uh, and, and greatly challenges them. And you know, just the uh, just the first one is the, called the source of truth, and it's basically we're unreliable and we're not very good feedbackers. Basically, is what they're telling us, if that's a word. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And just, again, it's a challenging piece. And then my simpleton side of me just went back to really, you have to know your audience and know what they're, where they're coming from, which speaks to why you get to know students and how you can give appropriate feedback. And then I forget, they have a different term for it, but basically a specific positive feedback is a whole lot better than, and, and giving them the why you liked what they were doing. Um, a little bit when I read it, it was a little bit of, you know, everybody gets a trophy. Are we always going to be positive? And, and sometimes some people it, that doesn't work. And so there's um, you have to take a different approach, but it also you have to get to know the individual. So it's not necessarily a, an abrupt um, manner. But I, I think there are ways to give feedback in a manner that works for individuals. And you just have to figure that out. Done. Andy. Okay, so uh, for for me, it was uh, looking at a couple things, but in particular, what is excellence? You know, it's undefinable, and I can give a very short, short, short uh, share a short story about when I played football in university. We had a running back who, in his rookie year, 
comes out of nowhere out of high school and he ends up being the national uh, rookie of the year. And he ran for over a a thousand yards in his first season. And he had this really unique style. He wasn't a big guy and he would always manage to get positive yardage. And even the veterans on the team were like, what is it about him that makes him so good? And we couldn't define it. And, and after half a season, we're like, is it his ability to be slicey, dicey, turn sideways? He's not fast. He doesn't, you know, barrel over people. But at the end, we couldn't define it. We really couldn't define it. He only played another year and then stopped playing football. But the point is you can't define excellence. Excellence is not defined in one way. And this article really opened my eyes to that. We see different teachers doing different things that it feels like they're doing a really good job, but you can't really put your finger on it. Um, That second piece is this article to me is about that approach where an organization has to take a really um, an aggressive approach to feedback where the person has to stand up in front of their whole team and then everybody has a gets to take a shot at them. Right. It's about like you suck at that. You didn't do that. You didn't think you know enough about that. You're not very good in this area. Did you consider that? So it seems to me the article came across as being uh, that feedback needs to be delivered in an aggressive way, you know, and identifying weaknesses. And then, as you said, Aaron, the solution, one of the solutions is to. Um, to recognize strengths and to call out strengths in the moment when you see them. And I, I remember, like, I don't know the exact wording, but it's like, oh, yeah, that. Do that. Keep doing that. Well, what is that? But uh, that idea that you're actually sharing what that is, what were they doing well in that moment? So that's what kind of resonated with me. But you know, I never want to give or receive feedback in a way that's described by the way that people do it at Netflix, which is that 360 view where everybody takes a shot at you. So, yeah, it it brought a few questions up in my mind that I have that I want to explore further in this episode. But um, in moving forward, what do we feel um, individually, but is the best way to create the conditions where feedback is more a part of the natural part of the process of growing and learning. So who wants to answer it? Sure. I'll give that a shot. So natural part of what we do. So, um, so again, I, I feel like, especially lately, I've been trying to take that, that, uh, that position of, of again, sort of receiving feedback um, rationally. And so I know for me, the things that I can control, that I can control the way I receive feedback. I can control the things that I, I can, um, change when I receive that feedback, I can control what I do with it. Right. Um, and it was talking about in the, in the article, I I, I believe one part of it was talking about how, um, there, there, there sort of has to be, and, and, and Aaron was talking about it as well, this relationship with the person who is give, giving that feedback, right? And I, I feel like um, for a good portion of my life, I have accepted feedback or, or you know, 
whatever you want to call it, certain praise or, or, or criticism uh, from the people that are closest to me and that I love and that I trust and that I have a relationship, I, I, I receive it and it has a very strong impact on me. And if that relationship doesn't exist, I've learned to kind of, you know, kind of push it away and it's not as important. Um, and I feel like I do that pretty well. So, uh, again, I can control what I do with that feedback. So for me, um, the practical side of it is, is what can I do? What can I control? Uh, what can I do with that feedback and how am I receiving that feedback so that I can make changes if it's applicable, right? And we talked about this on the last, last podcast as well. If, if it's coming from a source that, I, that, that is not trusted and that I feel uh, isn't necessarily helpful, then I have I, I can compartmentalize that and say, you know what, it's there, but I don't know if I'm going to put a lot of stock into it. Uh, whereas if it's coming from my pedagogical coordinator, I should probably listen, right? Um, so I, I feel like for me, on an everyday basis, that's that's what that's what I have to do uh, with the feedback that I'm constantly receiving from my environment, from everything, the kids, from you, from my, you know. Uh, for my administration and whatever else, especially in teaching, um, I have to be in a place where I can distinguish what is uh, accurate and reasonable feedback and what I can kind of push over to the side and not necessarily consider at this point. So let's go, Aaron. Picking back on what you kind of talked about the first time and this time, Jorge, is that you know, one of the examples they give in the article is, is starting out a, a conversation with, can I give you some feedback? And I don't necessarily think that is a negative if the culture is appropriate. But if every time Andy comes to me and says, can I give you some feedback, which means I'm going to get reamed, then the fight or flight comes into play. But if, if Andy and I have created this relationship and, and we just know that's how it starts, I mean, you know, again, it used to, it's one of these, it's, it's asking when you say that, can I give you some feedback? If the person says, no, <laughs> I guess you don't get feedback, but the, the connotation is, is that you're going to be allowed to get feedback. I always start with our student teachers. When I go with, watch them teach, I, I usually ask them, what do you think? Because I really don't know where they are and what they're thinking that how that lesson went. it could have been atrocious and they think it went great, which they usually do. Um, but I think it all goes back to that, the context, and it takes time to create that where I know I'm comfortable in how I'm going to get feedback from Andy or Greg or my supervisor. It, it, and again, it takes time. Whereas if, if I know that I'm going to get reamed or, or I'm, just, I'm not going to get anything that's really useful, then can I give you some feedback? Doesn't mean as much. It might mean just shut her down. They're going to say something that means nothing. It can mean put up a wall, but if you've created this environment where you can give feedback back and forth and, and there's this reciprocating conversation, but I think that takes time. And as I said before, I think that takes relationships and it takes um, creating that culture over time that this is a place where feedback can be given and it's designed to help us not necessarily just be, um, negative, Greg. So just Greg, I just want to add on to or ask a question. Um, in the article, they give the example that feedback, direct feedback is really necessary when you're screwing up. So they give the example of the pilot and the nurse. 
So a pilot has all of these checklists in place and they absolutely have to follow certain steps to keep the plane in the air or land the plane or, you know, to make sure it takes off properly. A nurse has to know the steps in giving a proper injection. And if they screw up in the moment, they need to be told that they're screwing, not that they're screwing up, that they've made a mistake that could be fatal. Now, with teaching, it's not fatal, but it can have a de detrimental impact on students for, for many, many years afterwards. So when it comes to your positions as teacher, you know, pre-service teacher, mentors, and trainers, you're sitting there watching teachers in action on a daily basis. And you can see, oh, what the language they're using, how they're dismissing certain students, you know, whatever it is that they're saying in the moment could be detrimental to learning. How do you deal with that in the moment where you need to step in and give feedback as opposed to the, the, the things you might want to say to them, suggest to them, they might need to adjust, but these subtle things might not have as deep of an impact. So you can put them to the side and have a discussion about them. So how do you balance that need for direct feedback in the moment? as opposed to other forms of feedback that are suited for later moments? That's a big issue, really big area. And it's really interesting that you <clears throat> picked out the, um, uh, the analysis or the, the description of feedback in medicine and feedback in aviation. Um, Matthew Said, I don't know if you ever came, come across his um, black box book, which starts with uh, um, a comparison uh, to the way aviation deals with um, errors, as you said, often you know horrendous uh, plane crashes. Um, the way they deal with that, the way the learnings from the black box are disseminated across all airlines within 48 hours, I think it is, compared and contrasted to medical errors that were often covered up in a culture of fear. And the, one of the things that really forward-thinking hospitals have done is adopted the openness from the aviation industry that mistakes happen, we need to minimise them, and we need to learn from them. And so uh, to take the, that, those processes without the backdrop of a culture of openness, a culture of acceptance of mistakes, is only taking a part of that. So the direct instruction... And the direct intervention, first of all, if I think everybody's got professional duty, that if a child is in harm, there needs to be direct intervention. How we define harm, of course, we've got physical harm. If you've got a very inexperienced teacher doing something that is reasonably foreseeable, foreseeably going to lead to an injury in a gymnasium, yeah, of course you step in. But harm could also be, and our subject can be really around a sense of humiliation or a sense of shame and psychological harm that can really be counterproductive. So um, I, I think if everybody knows those ground rules and they know that that's why we're stepping in, um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think you're doing that for absolutely, well, non-contentious reasons. Um, as far as how do we make it part of an everyday conversation, the, the article spoke about the empty vessel model. Uh, which I mentioned right at the start, I know you're going to listen. I'm going to pour my knowledge into the empty vessel. Um, it, it all, 
I'd, I'd like, I'd prefer to go to uh, another uh, book on called Legacy around the All Black Rugby Team, which is very similar actually to what Stephen Rolnick was talking about with his motivational interviewing. With the starting point of the question is, what can I do to help you do your job better? Um, and if we've got that, the skill actually becomes the skill of mentoring and supporting someone and supporting them to become reflective. So when Aaron quite rightly says we need to know the individual, yeah, we need to know their temperament, we need to know their starting point, but we also need to know what what's their framework, how equipped are they to reflect? And if they're very reflective, you just need to drop in the appropriate questions. So our team used a model that was developed for nursing, actually, back to medicine, by a guy called Rolf. And we just asked three simple questions. Well, we tried to. What The first question is what? And that could be any descriptive thing that happened. What happened? Um, and then it's so what? And then it's what next? And that's the cycle that we try to stick to. And if if the person being observed and the receiver of the feedback is equipped to dive deeply into those questions, then you can have really productive conversations. The problem comes, as Aaron said, if there's a mismatch, like what are they hanging that off of? What What's their perception of, well, what is good in this situation? And another thing that came up in the article, how do you describe good? And gosh, you know, when we're talking about something that's so wishy-washy as physical education, you know, if you're going into phys ed and you're thinking good is driving them for fitness then, you know, that was a great lesson because they all ended up on their knees out of breath and dripping with sweat. Well, okay, let's pick up the conversation. So, yeah, I hope we covered some some of the direct points and then how to create a normal conversation. And just to jump on that, to addressing the issue, if it's... If it's one of these happening, I mean, I've never had anything like a physical issue that with the kids doing things. I did have an issue with a student teacher. And he kept trying to explain something to a kid and he was clearly getting very frustrated to give specific feedback. And finally I went over and I said, um, that that boy doesn't speak English. <laughs> so it was just one of these, he was getting frustrated and he, he knew this, but in the moment, you know, he's a student teacher and his supervisor's there and all these kinds of things. So occasionally I'll walk over and say something to him, but rarely if ever. Um, and part of that is, is I can talk to them because it's not the first time I've worked with them. I'm, you know, you've been with them several along the way from the first time they ever came into a class and didn't know anything about PE to when they're student teaching and, and they've been working with cooperating teachers that all have this comment. So I can say, Hey, is this something you've been working on with? Yep. I'm not saying a word. Cause you know, it, it's one of these that I learned early on that not nothing special about me. I think it's all co- or all university supervisors is you have this clout and this, you have to know you can say something and it, it's just huge to them and it, it, it's can be devastating. So I usually very say very little because I know the cooperating teachers have been working with them and working with them and working with them. So me coming and giving a snapshot, it's like standardized testing. I mean, it's just a snapshot of what's going on. So I try and find out what, but if there is something that's that big of a deal that, you know, like the, the teacher was getting frustrated and getting way off of his quote unquote game, um, teaching wise, could be, <laughs> the student just doesn't speak English. You know, it's just pretty simple that issue here. Jorge, you had something to say, I think. Yeah, I just wanted to um, to add a little to what uh, Greg and Andrew were saying, and uh, with the idea of um, uh, of 
sort of professional responsibilities. And, and I think, uh, as a teacher, you, you, you also have to do sort of your due diligence to understand what is, um, one expected of you and what is best practice in your situation. Um, so I remember one time I got observed in, in Houston and, uh, the observation, the, 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 uh, the, the system over there is basically, uh, an administration, it's an administrator comes into your classroom for one class and then writes up everything that they see and then pretty much presents a judgment on you and your teaching abilities based on that one lesson. Right. And if that person doesn't know what they're talking about or what best practice looks like in PE, it could be way off. Um, and I remember I got, a, I got observed and I, I was doing a pretty good lesson and I believe it was a cooperative learning lesson. I thought it was great. You know, the kids loved it. it was, kids were very engaged. And, um, the suggestion was that I, that I do more sort of relays and, and activities like that where the kids stand in line and they, and they wait for their turn and then they, they run in like relay races. And I was like, What? I mean, this is totally, you know, it, it's not, it, 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 I had to take the feedback because it was from my boss, but at the same time, I knew it wasn't best practice in the physical education realm. And so, you know, you have to, you have to have a conversation there. Well, you have to play the game, but then, but then I also had to defend myself by going in and having the conversation and saying, look, this is where it's coming from. This is the research behind it. This is the, these are the books that I've read that support this, uh, this, this, uh, model-based instruction, uh, you know, uh, process of, of physical education. And this is the research. It's sound. It's right here. It's, you're, 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 you're talking about 1960s PE and I'm talking about 2000s here, you know? And, and, you know, I had to fight my case and, and ultimately I got, you know, I got, I got that changed. I got those scores changed on my observation. Um, but because I was, I had done my due diligence, right. I had, I had read the books. I had done the research. I knew what I was talking about. I'd done the PD. I've gone, you know, and talked to these people about cooperative. I, I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm doing. And so I could make my case because I knew what I was doing. And so sometimes you, you come across that where the person who is supposed to be giving you feedback actually doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. And then the other thing I wanted to kind of ask you about, Andy, was uh, something that Greg brought, brought up was um, the, the case of mismatch, when you're mismatched. So you're presenting the feedback in a certain way, but the person isn't receiving it in that way. So I think we have a pretty good relationship, and I take your feedback very honestly, and I take it very openly, um, but because we have that relationship, right? And, and I know you work with a lot of teachers, so I wonder if you ever have that that. Uh, those conversations where you can tell that it's a mismatch conversation and what you're trying to put down isn't being picked up by the person that you, that, that you want to receive it. So what do you do in those situations? Um, so that's one of the interesting things. And this is what, uh, Greg, I talked about with Rolnick was, uh, Dr. Rolnick was this idea of letting my values get in the way. So, you know, I have values about what I believe is best practice and as a coach uh, of teachers, instructional coach, I can sometimes let them get in the way. And when I'm seeing something 
it might not be glaringly obvious, but when I'm seeing something that I want to address, I, I try to do it through curiosity and questions and say more about your lesson and what you were thinking and what you were trying to do. And, and then it, I'm hoping that they will receive it because I don't want to be direct and just say what I think, because that's not my role as a coach. It's to unlock internal resources within the teacher to help them reflect on their own practice. And then when it comes to a roadblock, it could be cultural. Absolutely. It could be cultural. And when it comes to that roadblock, then that's what I need to reflect on. Like what is going on here? Really? Like beyond just the, the, uh, obvious like what's going on what's underlying um and that's where it really requires much deeper thinking around um the other perspective and what might be going on behind the the, behind the scenes and to inquire more into that and begin to open up dialogue and that's where, where i want this discussion to go now is that how can we create more genuine dialogue around curiosity and wondering? So feedback is not standing up in the room, having daggers thrown at you. Feedback is more curious in nature and opening up dialogue and the the power that lies in dialogue. So that's my response. I wish I was better skilled at keeping dialogue going in those difficult moments. And that's what I'm trying to learn more in my leadership practice is how I can better, uh, I guess, have more of an empathic uh, listening ear and to really, truly better understand, you know, and that's where social media, you know, there's so, you know, social media, we could go a million directions with that. But um, I do want to ask both of you um, how you can kind of create those conditions more for empathic listening as a, as a coach, as a lecturer, and to create more dialogue, like where, where does that resonate with you? And what is it that you're curious about your own practice as a leader and a lecturer that you want to explore more to become better at giving and uh, receiving feedback? Yeah. I mean, some of this hits home, not just professionally but personally as well but it's this idea and again they talk about this in the article it's the um putting it on myself i'm struggling can you help me understand this and creating that as opposed to putting people putting an individual on the defensive um i think that's where we really start to um what were you thinking like I mean, you can phrase it as, can you help me understand what you were thinking? But it's still, it's it's on them as opposed to saying, can you help me understand where you were going with this part of the lesson? Or can you help me understand what you were doing with this? And and again, it's, it's kind of lessons. And it's, it's like you said, an empathetic, empathetic listener is, but it's beyond just feedback and teaching. It's listening to individuals and, and finding out exactly what they think and where and putting it on yourself it's like you know when i when i would call a parent if i ever had to about a student's behavior it was always i have the issue not your student because you don't know what's going to happen if you tell a parent that their student you know whatever but what the behavior is but it's as a teacher and, and when you go to talk to another uh, another teacher about a current student it would be i'm having trouble with this not 
you know, the student. I mean, that puts the blame on someone else that you really can't control anyway. What you're trying to do is control yourself. And, and as an individual trying to communicate with other people, I think it's important to really put it back on you. Um, Jordan Manley, who I know um, a colleague of ours that um, was a former student, but now a colleague, has a whole lesson that he does about students creating activities and the students give feedback to each other and they phrase the feedback. He, he trains them and they have to phrase it as I wonder, as opposed to, I didn't like this part of the activity. They have to say, I wonder what would happen if you did this, this, and this as opposed, and, and it puts that just that little tight or little small little twist on it that makes it about them. And it's much more palatable than the, I didn't like, this, this, and this about the game. And as a student giving the feedback, you have to come with a solution too, as opposed to, I didn't just like this. I don't know if I addressed the question or not, but Greg, fix it for me, will you? I'm not sure I'm going to address the question, um, but I'll do my best. Um, okay, so I think all of us work in, you know, pretty hierarchical um, uh, structures. Um, teacher education, super hierarchical. Schools themselves, education. Um, there's a really cool head teacher, a guy called Jeremy Hannay, and he's a, he, he's a head of a, a primary school in London called Three Bridges. And he swam against the tide of um, common uh, assumptions. Uh, so he, uh, in the UK that neo-managerialism takes the form of things like uh, learning walks where people will be dropped into a lesson. Uh, so uh, where uh, what we would call senior management would drop into a lesson um, or checking books in, a, in, in classroom-based subjects or presenting a hard evidence and it's very much related to performance-related pay. And we also have a very uh, high-status inspectorial system referred to as Ofsted and they they carry a huge amount of currency so when they inspect a school it's make or break for potentially careers certainly for the senior management of, career, of that school so Jeremy um, who, and I only know him from, through social media so I don't know why I'm referring to him by his first name as if we're best pals because we're not I've never actually met him but he swims against the tide he said no we're going to do this another way we're going to create a very happy school we're going to create a supportive school where staff and and children are happy. And that's his that's what he sets his stall out to do. So he does no public or down. private. Public or private? Uh, it's a public maintained school, state school. And uh, he does no top-down inspection, no top-down uh, monitoring. Um, and I love uh, uh, I was a party to a conversation where someone divulged his three key questions that he asked his staff. One, what can we do better to help you do a better job in the classroom? Okay, fair enough. Two, tell me something about yourself that's nothing to do with your professional life. And three, and I think this is the best question ever, if I met your, uh, your special other or your child, would they give me a high five or would they punch me in the balls? <laughs> that was a great, a great question on how we build the relationships where people can flourish in the workplace and it's based on that trust. So that brings me back to the soft skills. Where do we learn this stuff? Andy, you do this for a living. Now, you've obviously read and listened and really invested heavily on how do I become a better mentor, observer, pedagogical coach. I mean, really, we're professional counsellors in that sense. And as Aaron regularly says, teaching is very personal. 
So that means we have to tap into the personal and show huge, uh, like really significant counselling skills on not only listening, but we need to show emotional intelligence. We have to be empathetic, unless, of course, we go in for that very macho, tell it as it is. And we've had many, many student teachers who say, just tell me how it, what I have to do, what I have to do. And it, it, now I think that's probably a bit lazy. It's probably a bit lazy on their part, because what they're really saying is, you tell me so I don't have to think about it. And I've got a really thick skin, probably because I've played loads of sport and I could deal with that sort of stuff. So, yeah, how do we get those skills to really engage in the sort of conversations that you're talking about. And they are counselling skills, aren't they? I mean, some of the people you've flagged up, Andy, um, you know, really go deep into how do we get the best out of someone in their in their performance. So, again, not sure I've answered the questions, but that's the culture, the the framework in which this this can flourish. But as we've all said, it doesn't it doesn't always work. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a little wrench into the conversation. Because because uh, you brought up social media, Uh-oh. you said the S word, Uh-oh. and uh, and I'm thinking about how okay so so like you were saying we 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 have all this training we've read all these books we've read all these articles we try to do our best to have this emotional intelligence so that when we're giving feedback to our students to our teachers to you know the people we're involved with um, we do it in a respectful way. Now I have been on certain thread boards or uh, forums that I try to be as respectful as possible. And you know me, I mean, come on, I'm not a, I'm not a very harsh, disrespectful person. I'm very careful with my words and how I present myself. And, and I've been called names and I've been just because I ask about a dodgeball game, you know, and maybe the educative purpose of a dodgeball game, just because I might inquire about what the educated purpose might be about throwing balls at, at people and hitting them in the face. And I've been called all kinds of nasty names. So how do we do this on social media? And is it even a platform to do this? So I don't know who wants to take that, but, uh, but yeah, what do we do with that? What do we do with this social media? Extension question, but so uh, the first episode was about some of the frustrations when you're trying to create dialogue on social media. We know social media is limited to 280 characters. However, the as you always say, Jorge, the, the act of putting something on social media is an act of opening yourself up to criticism. If you're saying, oh, this is great. My kids loved it. Here we go. This is awesome. If you do this, you'll be great too. Well, you are opening yourself up to criticism. Um, so that's what I'm curious about. Like our, our phys ed network is, is so uh, represented on social media. I think more than math and literacy and all of this, we have a phys ed hashtag. There's so many phys ed teachers on social media. So how can we promote um, social media in phys ed as being a powerful platform to not only share what you're proud of, share what you've worked hard at, how can we actually use social media in a way that really, uh, based on 280 characters, can lead to um, 
further discussions and depth about professional development growth and all of these things. So it might not be for that, but let's just say we were to use it in that way. How can we better use it, Aaron Beatley? I think, I think if you, I mean, just because you put it on there, yeah, you open yourself to criticism, but that doesn't mean you're going to have to like it or take it. I, you know, I, I think, and I said this before, I, maybe this is overgeneralization and it probably is. Um, but I'm as most, you know, I'm like Jorge, I struggle to really share what's on my mind most of the time. Um, I think that there are two reasons people get on social media and, and I've heard this a long time ago. Those of you in the U S will know a guy named Colin Calvert and he talks about Twitter being an echo chamber for self or uh, for affirmation for affirmation self. It's affirmation seeking echo chamber. And that's really what it is. And I think people share to get likes. If you've, if you've watched the social dilemma, it's incredible. And, and it's interesting how Facebook started with the likes to try and promote positivity when the reality, what happened was it made us dependent on that. And I think there are people on Twitter and on social media to learn. And there are some in between, but I think, and if you're on there just to share how great and what all the fun things you're doing in your physical education lessons, you're not going to like that feedback. You're in a place as Jorge talked about earlier, you're in a place where as soon as someone questions it, you're going to get defensive. And if you're on it to learn, then you'll obviously love that. But I don't know that there's an, there are, there are some in between and we can all name people that are in between that share things and love to talk PE, but there's a lot that don't. And and I think that's the, the dilemma of, and, and why there is controversy. And I, I've said this from the beginning. I know most of you know, I wrote a, a blog. I think it was Twitter is dumb or something like that. And yeah. And, and, and it, it I really struggle with it because of these issues and, and that why are we on this and, and, and why are you here? And, and, and if you're on here just to share your ideas, you're not going to take that feedback very well. You don't want that feedback, but if you're on there to share the app to, to really dialogue, then you'll hear that and, and it'll be a, a, a different experience clearly. But, but surely then uh, well, the, the issue is finding the right echo chamber while acknowledging that it is an echo chamber. So there's lots of different rooms within Twitter and even within Twitter phys ed. There's, there, I think there is a very positive, healthy uh, exchange of ideas scene, uh, which is quite an honest scene. Um, and I've certainly enjoyed some great conversations. One or two have been really challenging. I had a particularly, not particularly challenging, but a very interesting Twitter conversation with Justin O'Connor where uh, really he really made me think deeply about uh, one or two things we were talking about. Um, compare and contrast to um, a, a recent exchange where a young teacher, I think she was in her first year, uh, well, I didn't know this at the time, she, she reached out and said, what can I do, any ideas what I can do with my bottom set, whatever it was in whatever activity, and, you know, I, I don't know if I was in a particularly grouchy mood at the time, but I get really triggered by language around bottom set and top set. And, you know, part of that is my issue because it's very, very common in, in staff rooms up and down the country, but it really doesn't sit with me. So I just replied, well, m maybe the first thing to do is to stop referring to them as a bottom set. 
And she, she wrote back very defensively um, around, I thought this was a supportive platform. So that, I learned loads from that, actually. Probably not even to go, I don't know, should I have gone there? I, I'm not sure. Um, she wasn't ready to engage in that sort of critical conversation. Um, so, yeah, finding the right room to be in and taking it for what it is and knowing, I mean, I think knowledge is power and, it, uh, you know, social media platforms are incredibly brilliant when they, um, and I, I mean brilliant in like super smart in the way that they play us and that we're all subjected to it. So the only way to really be able to navigate that is like read, watch some of those documentaries you're talking about and know the tricks that they're using, especially Instagram, which we're not really talking about because we're far too old for that. But um, kids are much more at the mercy of that. Aaron, over to you. Jorge and Andy, did you know what he meant by bottom set and top set? Oh, you do. See, I had no, I saw that conversation on Twitter, had no idea. That speaks to the cultural stuff that it's like, oh, that maybe that I just kind of scrolled through it. I'm like, yeah, okay, Greg was grumpy. But it, it didn't really dawn on me that that was that, that the language was a, a, an issue. I had never heard that language before. So it, again, it just speaks to what, what room you're in, what echo chamber. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really good point uh, to, um, to sort of, cultivate your social media feed and the people you follow and the people who follow you and the people you have conversations with, um, with the people again, again, with the relationships and the feedback with the people you have relationships with and the people you can trust and, 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 uh, you know, exchange ideas with and share ideas and get kind of get, uh, mentally challenged by those people. And I think that's really important. Um, but again, I think there are these forums that are popping up or that, that, that have popped up at, that have, people just seeking either praise or, or not any kind of critical feedback. And they might, they might, they might think they're looking for feedback, but then when they get something, something or somebody that challenges them uh, mentally, then they take it personally. Right. And so that has kind of, and then also, you know, watching the social dilemma, reading and listening to like, like uh, Jonathan Haidt and his book about, uh, the coddling of American mind. He, he talks about, you know, the, the, the impact that social media has had on some of our youth and things like that. I kind of wonder sometimes if, if social media is a platform for that, or if these kinds of conversations are that platform, because, because we do have this technology, we do have social media, we do have the, you know, this zoom call that we're on and I can talk to people from around the world. I have this podcast. That's why, that's why I really enjoy the podcast and, and, and talking to people in sort of long form, you know, for an hour or more um, and, have, ha- and having these conversations because that's, that's really valuable and important. So I wonder personally if Twitter is a place for those things or is it just a place to just kind of share stuff and check out the lesson I did, give me some likes, and that's what it is. I mean, is it the tool to actually have in-depth conversations? And can you have those in-depth conversations in 240 characters? I mean, that's hard. That's yeah, a difficult thing. 200, whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, think, I mean, I think that's for me, that's the question. Should we be having these, these debates on the PE Central Facebook page? I don't know. I think it's a platform to, your point is huge, that you create your own network but Twitter opens the doors to a lot more people that you would have never met. But you have to be on there for that reason. 
if and I think that's the nice part. You can jump off onto this on the Zoom. You can jump off onto WhatsApp or to other platforms to have these more in depth. But you found Jorge, you found this group of people via Twitter. Now, what I think is is dangerous in essence is this free sharing of ideas with no accountability. Always have thought that was an issue with Twitter, and everybody tells me I'm crazy, but. It does seem to be when you don't have that refereeing. But I think the beauty of Twitter is that you can you you have met people, Jorge, that you would have never met and would have, wouldn't have had that group to challenge you. And you've taken that responsibility to create that group and you can jump off of Twitter and go somewhere else to share more in depth, which I think is huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's a difficult balance sometimes. So, Aaron, can I ask then, you know, if social media is not going to go anywhere and you know we're, we're both in teacher education and uh clearly it's it's a, a, a you know is it is it the right place is it is it made for that well it strikes me not even as a double-edged sword it's like a multi-edged sword and our online presence probably reflects our real world quite quite closely um, so I, I guess a question, Aaron, if it's not going anywhere and you're responsible for teachers um, who, who, you know, going forward, they might teach for the next 30, 40 years and impact on, you know, many thousands of young people's lives. And yet they've got this open access, never before has information been so readily available, uh, hacks into like this is how to teach by numbers, as I mentioned before. Is it time that... Um, social media awareness, literacy, how to navigate social media, how to be a discerning user of social media. Should that be in the professional learning elements of pre-service and in-service teachers? Yeah, I think, I mean, educating them to be lifelong learners, I think is part of the, um, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you get to a master's degree level, at least in the U S and you finally learn about a lot about more about research and how to pick apart an article and say, that wasn't a very good article. It's the same idea of being able to look at an activity, look at an, uh, a model, look at an instructional style, look at an instructional strategy and say, not, I guess I'm, I'm one of these, I don't like to say poo poo on anything. I, I think there's a place it'll probably has a place that it can work man, that takes time as a teacher to be able to have that. That's why I think the the ongoing education is so cru- crucial because, I mean, none of us would have ever been told how to use Twitter. Maybe a list, probably not even a listserv. I mean, the listservs were around, but I mean, basically we would have been taught how to look at an article in Jopard and say whether the activity fit our needs or not. And so there's that mindset, I think, that's there that you can teach. But, uh, you know, specific to a, a, an app, uh, a specific uh, media, medium, I guess, um, I think that's tough. I think you have to – it's almost like teaching people to be critical thinkers. Bottom line is that's what we're trying to do is to get them to critique everything they do. So what I've come to realize listening to you guys over the last few minutes is that we're doing a part three. Uh, first of all, and um, so many great points brought up. In particular, I'm really curious more about that idea of um, in pre-service teacher education, like really diving into social media, not just here's Twitter and here's this great, amazing, you know, amazing phys ed network, 
but being much more discerning and really teaching the skill of being critical consumers, even for experienced educators, you know? So if we all agree to do a third round, are we okay with that? Yes. I'm getting yeah. thumbs up. Yep. Good point, mate. Uh, yeah. Okay. So what I, w- I would, um, maybe as closure, um, let's talk about, um, just not a piece of advice, just any thoughts that we want to share for people of influence on social media in our network, be, be they researchers, teachers, pre-service teachers, whoever, um, but people of influence in our network, what is something you're wondering about that you want to share? Okay. So, so with the idea of social media, um, I think it's really important for, for everybody to kind of be that critical consumer. And when you're dealing with, with the wild west of social media, uh, I think it's important to be grounded in your ethics and values and really, again, have that professional responsibility to know what your, what, what, what your profession calls for, right? What, what is best practice in, health and physical education. So when you go out and you see some of these um, uh, videos that are shared or or tweets that are shared, um, you can be a critical consumer of that and not necessarily just take it as as, uh, as best practice. You know what I mean? So I think, again, I think the responsibility when you're in the wild west of social media lies on you. So that's what I would say. Greg. Greg. Um, yeah, what's what advice on using social media? Um, but, but not, not so, so much, really Greg, Greg, not so much advice, just your wonderings. So people of uh, influence, okay. what what are you wondering about? Yeah. Yourself included, yeah. you're influential yeah, yeah. on social media. Yeah. Aaron is, you know, we so what is, what are you wondering about? What are you curious about? Uh, so not so much advice or well, then, feedback. With so let's go full circle because there was a really nice few lines in that, the feedback fallacy, where it was talking about replicating excellence and taking certain key things. And it said, if we think that to do really well in X, you don't you need to reject ego, you're probably wrong. So I'm really curious about the reasons what motivates people to have their social media presence and to shape it as it is um, and how ego, what fuels the ego. So ego could be getting the likes, it could be getting the followers, or it could be actually the satisfaction from being supportive, being uh, out there, but being humble with that. And, um, you know, I work with a great guy called, called Alex, who's uh, I'm Sporticus on social media and he does manage to maintain um a high number of followers because he's got a really good blog and while at the same time really really humble um and it's a it's an amazing combination and it's it really is exclusively a learning tool for him where he's learning from others and contributing back into the field and it's a dialogue and it's all about dialogue so um uh, yeah i'm really curious what motivates um uh, the world at large and, and especially the influences that you're talking about. Um, and how do, 
No, I, I've been, I guess like you guys, well, I know, I know like one or two of you, you know, I've also been triggered by stuff on social media and it, it's, I've been amazed at how much of an impact it's had on my, on my day and stuff has got in my head and stayed there for far too long, far too long. And it's, it feels deeply personal at times. And, um, you know, I know Andy and I, we've had this conversation, maybe, or maybe not, but, uh, you know, so dealing with the emotional, I'm much better at it now. And it, I'm, go, I'm currently going through a phase where I'm a little bit bored by it. Not the people, but I'm just bored by the scrolling thing. And, you know, also you watch your time go up and it can fill up a huge amount of time. So how do we manage that? How do we learn to manage it? How do we play? Who's playing who on social media? Who's using who and for what we're we using it? So there's loads of questions. Talking the final word, I, I, I mentioned to Alex about this conversation around social media. And I said, you know, Alex is a great resource for our team. He's like Wikipedia and RefWorks rolled into one. And I said, you know, what's out there? What do we know about how, how social media is supports so, uh, professional learning? And so only yesterday, I think he sent me nine articles around social media use for teacher development. Uh, I hasten to say I haven't read the nine articles in the 24 hours since he sent them to me, but I'll try and get through one or two before part three. Aaron. So I don't know if people picked up that Greg just shared the great mystery of Twitter and the link between I am Sporticus and you got to listen, go back and listen. I'm telling you, it was there. Um, It was. It was, and I don't know if anybody put it's just, wow, this is like the big mystery here. Um, you know, what? I, 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 I was just thinking, and if, and I don't know if the influencers would put in their, whatever that little blurb is underneath your picture, whatever that's called, why they're there. Are they there to share? Are they there to learn? I mean, I think that's the, I mean, just because you're an influencer and have a bunch of followers doesn't mean you're there to dialogue. I would guess most most of the big people that I follow that are related to sports media and sports and broadcasting, they just share things. They usually don't get into dialogue with people. So, you know, that's I, I think it would be as educators to share what we're there for and how that because if, if you see someone post something and they're just there to share. All right then you probably don't want to have a dialogue. But if you're there to learn and to, and to get feedback, it might be a way to, to see that and to, I guess, flag yourself up as I'm, inter- I'm interested in dialogue as opposed to I'm not someone that I've, – I've been involved and several of you have on social media, people that do not handle any questioning very well at all. I mean, I've been blocked for asking, can you tell me more about this activity? So, you know, clearly that's not – what that person is is there for i'm sorry about and blocking it'd be you, nice aaron. to know that aaron i'm sorry about blocking you <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was jorge jorge can't handle anything it was it was one during my early days and i, I wasn't even rude i mean i, I my, my first tweet ever was did anyone ever read this article which was probably not a great intro to twitter but because they, they were, the, the conclusions were not related to what they found but I, I think it would be nice to know what people are on there for and, and to, to get that feedback. But I don't know if that's possible or not. I'm just thinking out loud. That leads us to the third part, which will be, I, I am going to answer the question. Mike, my, my, I don't have the answer to be honest, because I'm still ruminating. Uh, but I, I feel that 
I, I like the idea of what Aaron said of like, I'm on social media to just share. So just, I'm letting you know, as you know, full disclosure, everything I put on social media is just to share or full disclosure, disclosure, I'm putting stuff on social media to be challenged because I want to grow and learn. I like that idea. I don't think it'll ever fly, Aaron, but I like that idea of, of just being very open and honest about why you're posting um, and that's what I'll leave with, like just trying to continue, you know, continuing to figure this out. So, um, by so, the way, that was very good feedback, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> Did you like that? That was praise. Did you like that? <laughs> yeah. I didn't, don't, don't, you know, we can't bring Dean Dudley into this because Dean Dudley, he doesn't backslap. He, he will literally punch you between the shoulder blades, <laughs> knock the like wind Greg's, out of you. Like Greg's principal friend. <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. So uh, I'm going to hand it over to Jorge to finish the episode, but we're going to do a part three once we gather our thoughts and and, uh, pursue more learning. All right. Well, thank you for the conversation. I thought it was a really, really great conversation. And I think definitely we have to do a part three because there's so much more to talk about because we talked a lot about... um, uh, different aspects of feedback and there's there's all these different rabbit holes that we can go down so i appreciate everybody's time and um who is i'm sporticus oh wait i'll have to edit that out <laughs> no, i appreciate it i wasn't aware it was a global secret so um <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah maybe we need to take feedback on this before going forward with part three because we might think it's a good idea but everyone else might think it's that's a great point <laughs> no it was really good <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate everybody's time and um, yeah, we'll call it, we'll call it an episode. All right. Thanks. Andy Vasily.